0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So, after Thanksgiving ends, that is the generally accepted start of Christmas time in our culture. Uh, in my home growing up, you were not allowed to watch a Christmas movie until after Thanksgiving. In my home now, my wife and children have forced me to break that rule. So, Christmas time has extended a little bit before Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving, it's, it's that kind of mark. We start into where it, it's, it's, it's kosher to have your Christmas lights up and on. You have Black Friday, where everybody is supposed to go out and, and do your shopping to. Get ahead on the Christmas gifts, which, again, is something that it's it's not like it doesn't seem like there is much of a Black Friday anymore because I've been seeing Black Friday sales for the past two months. So it used to be a marking of time, but it's a time of, of, of parties and gatherings as we lead up to Christmas. And then you have the lectionary. that sees this instead as apparently a time to dive deep into apocalyptic literature and end-time predictions. Instead of a time to be getting tinsel to put on your tree, it kind of seems like a time to be getting tinfoil ready to make a hat. That landed so much better in my head whenever I I, I prepared the sermon. Like, it it was a really good joke, and... Well, that was awkward. Um, But see, to to mark the start of Lent, the lectionary has us read through this gospel reading in Matthew. It's actually one of the more challenging readings in Scripture. It's it's actually in our time a, a quite contentious passage. Different groups pointing to this to lay out their frameworks. And it's also a passage that has been fodder for many skeptics and many who want to discredit the inspiration of Scripture to be pointed to as a challenge. And so I I wrestled with this passage. I first just just thought maybe I wouldn't preach on it, but I felt that it was important to preach on it. But what I wrestle with is how to, how to engage this passage in a sermon form. I mean, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of Old Testament allusions, a lot of imagery, a lot of very well thought out theological frameworks that, that put all of this together differently. And so in many ways, this passage would make a great four-week study. But nobody wants four weeks of Bible study compressed into a homily or sermon. And so I decided that I'm not going to avoid some of the challenges here in the imagery here. So I want to make a few points regarding the, the imagery and the claims that are made in this passage in order to at least provide something to chew on as, as questions might arise as, as you reflect on this passage. Or as you engage different books and movies and preachers and whatever else that speak in different ways of this second coming of Christ, or even whenever you might engage a skeptic that points to passages such as this to challenge the authority of Scripture. But then I want to focus on what I think is the primary point, the point that Jesus, I believe, is driving home as he presents this, a point that also reveals the point of observing this penitential season of Advent each year. So to begin with, there's, there's kind of a, a prominent approach in thinking that is prominent in America that has actually formed and shaped two combating and somewhat warring sides. I mean, in this passage, we have Jesus say immediately after the tribulation of those days that there's going to be great celestial disturbances, disturbances, the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds, that there'll be trumpets in the gathering of God's people, be dudes working in the field, and one is suddenly taken away while the other is left. And the primary kind of framework in, in, in understanding this came to prominence starting in the 19th century in America out of the Plymouth Brethren. but gained great influence throughout the 20th century within American evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And the thing is is this viewpoint it's it's kind of it's an american literalism it's often brought into an even bigger framework called dispensationalism it's it's very complex and i don't intend to address it and there's very very brilliant thinkers who have different ways of working through all of these things, but in general, the approach treats apocalyptic language and passages such as this as literal in the sense of its face value, not symbolic imagery, and that it's almost always speaking about the future and a future reality that is a very conflated and short period of time. That passages such as this are descriptions to map out events for the second coming of Christ and the end of times. Hence, often read, this is Jesus preparing his disciples by describing a sequence of events that will depict his return. Creating an outline that is often laid out in which you have a darkening of the sun and these celestial things happening in the sky in which then the nations will be mourning in this tribulation and Jesus will return in the clouds and then a rapture will happen where one is left in the field and one is taken away. And I will say that that is a plausible reading. But then what happens is, in this type of passage, that framework is assumed. And I've heard many and read many skeptics that frequently point to this very passage as the aha moment to discredit the authority of Scripture and discredit Christ I actually listened to a few interviews of individuals who held very deeply to this outlining framework, but because of certain arguments from this passage, they have lost their faith. And the reason being is that in a plain reading, it also does say that Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. And if we go ahead, if you remember a few Sundays before, the tribulations that he was speaking of was the destruction of the temple. And then in 33-34, we have this hard few passages. He says, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things... Take place. And so the claim is that Scripture and Jesus Himself taught that His return was imminent and that all of this would occur within the first century. But there's a problem because it clearly didn't. We're 2,000 years later and no stars have fallen. No rapture has occurred. No Jesus in the clouds. And so there is different creative, brilliant, and maybe plausible explanations talking about how generation is used and everything else. And if you'd want to talk about those things, I find them quite interesting, but also sometimes quite distracting, and what ends up happening is that we have this issue where you have, have some who have almost like a second advent obsession that tries to decipher and map out the order and signs of Jesus' return and have it all perfectly work together. Or you have others who have a second advent indifference. Focusing just on moral teaching or personal spirituality or how Jesus provides the best life now. We're kind of putting to the wayside one of the most central claims at the heart of the Christian gospel. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And the truth be told, there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me that have very good frameworks for trying to understand it. So I'm not going to pretend or assume that I have it all figured out. But what I will say is that I think, actually my primary concern is that I don't think we were intended to have it figured out. I think in many ways that's what Jesus is doing right here. If you know about the first century context, if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls and the rabbinic writings... And you look in the New Testament and the issues that Jesus had with the religious leaders and the Pharisees was that in the first century, you had many Jews who went back to the scriptures and mapped out exactly what the coming of the Messiah was going to look like. The order of how it was going to happen. They would go back to passages such as the Old Testament passage that we just read today that was speaking about the coming of the Messiah King in which the pruning hooks or the weapons would be turned to to farm utensils. And as they had it all mapped out that it was all going to happen in this way when it didn't occur in the manner in which they had mapped out in their mind They missed the first advent. And now, in hindsight, looking back through the lens of the empty tomb and the cross, those first Jews who were followers of Jesus were able to see how actually all of that fit into the promises. None of it went against what the Old Testament had proclaimed. But without the revelation of Christ and the event to occur, nobody would have went back to the Old Testament and mapped it out the way that God is working things out. And So I don't think Jesus is now re-encouraging that type of activity to his disciples. Instead, I think Jesus in this passage, along with the account found in Luke and Mark of this same dialogue, is providing for his followers certainty of God's sovereignty and faithfulness while also reminding his disciples of the uncertainty of the timeline and when it will occur. As I said, there's many brilliant interpretations. Many are convincing. One may be right. I have an inkling that likely none are completely right. But there are some contextual points that I think help shed light on the primary point being conveyed to the disciples in this passage and subsequently being conveyed to us 2,000 years later. First point, just contextually, is to be reminded that the disciples would have never understood this as referring to Jesus' second coming. The reason I say that is because none of them thought there would need to be a second coming. As we will come and read in the, um, during Holy Week, right up to the end, they could not comprehend a dead and raised Messiah, let alone a Messiah that would have to return. No matter how many times Jesus alluded to it and directly said that it was occurring. Secondly, though, that does not mean that this is not what Jesus is speaking of. And so some see this as all about a future second coming, and some see this as all about what was actually about to take place within that generation. The death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the destruction of the temple. And within those type of views, I do think that actually both can be right. For example, in verse 30, Jesus says, "Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." This sign of the son of man is an allusion to passages such as Isaiah 11:12 and Isaiah 18:13 where it says that there will be a great sign in the heavens, a banner in which there will be trumpets, which will be a sign to the nations of God's coming redemption. And this phrase, all tribes on the earth will mourn, was not actually referring to a tribulation to the nations, but an allusion to Zechariah 12.10, in which he speaks of a time in which God will pour out his spirit of compassion. And he says, and they will look upon the one they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Proclamation of God's movement and repentance in the face of his grace. And so, in this, it is speaking towards passages of a great and final redemption, but then you have the Son of Man coming in the clouds, which is an allusion to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, he says that one like the Son of Man will be presented to God and placed as sovereign over all nations and people, over all things, and he will be seated at the right hand of God. Actually, the depiction of Daniel 7 is a depiction of the ascension of the one like the son of man going to the throne and receiving all power and honor and glory so in just this proclamation you have allusions to Old Testament passage that speak both of a final redemption but also the very imminent ascension That his disciples will see. And just quickly, similarly, in verse 29, when it talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and all of those different things, those are language that is commonly used in the Old Testament to depict judgment. And overthrowing of kingdoms in Isaiah thirteen ten and thirty four four Ezekiel thirty two seven Joel two ten and sometimes in those passages that is depicting a final judgment that God is going to have over all the earth and sometimes it's speaking of an imminent, imminent judgment such as in Isaiah thirteen when it's speaking of God's judgment coming to Babylon. And so in a similar way, it could be pure symbolism of the judgment on Israel that was to occur in 70 AD, utilizing Isaiah language for the destruction of Babylon. Or it could be pointing to a greater reality that encompasses all creation, as spoken of elsewhere in Isaiah and the other prophets. And so it could be speaking of what was imminent and could be speaking of his second coming that was far into the future, at least 2,000 years into the future, we know. Like I said, I think it was likely a little bit of both. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this prophetic practice of the now and not yet nature of proclamation that the New Testament authors saw back into the Old Testament prophecy. And so it often spoke of a reality that had a manifestation in the moment, but then a greater fulfillment. And also when you look back at the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, just like the one that we read, is speaking of of what we're reading with regard to the second advent. But it was all conflated into one moment in the minds of the readers of the Old Testament. And so in many ways... It is as if with regard to the coming of the Messiah, that when you look at it in one direction, it looks like it's a singular moment. But then as it moved closer and closer, began to realize that those events were spread out. And we're further apart. And so I lay that out to make things a little bit confusing. And I have a reason why. Because I think, ultimately, as you read through the nature of the way Christ is speaking of these things, the emphasis needs to be on the fact that Jesus is assuring his disciples that what was prophesied, those Old Testament imagery, those things that were tied to the coming of the Messiah, some of those things that did not occur, Though their reading of the Old Testament said when he came, it was going to happen. And it hadn't. He's assuring them that those prophecies of God's justice and judgment and redemption, the coming of his kingdom, it is at hand. And I don't think that his emphasis is on creating a clear roadmap, but to drive home the uncertainty of when, and yet the imminence of the fulfillment of all those things. I mean, you see his emphasis on the uncertainty in verse 36. After laying out what could be read as a roadmap, he then turns and says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so it would appear that though he is... Making these statements, he's saying that even he does not know when those things would occur. In 42, he says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He gives the analogy of the lesson from the fig tree. If you've not grown up in the Mediterranean area or in uh, the Italian neighborhood of Morningside in the east end of Pittsburgh, where you have a bunch of Italians that still try to grow fig trees, you may not know what that represents. But I did get to spend some time in Morningside, and we were given multiple fig trees that are not supposed to grow in Pittsburgh. But one of the things that is interesting about the fig tree is it's different than all the other trees. First of all, it does not get leaves until summertime hits. And unlike the other trees where you start to see, like, a reddening of the buds and then, like, you, you can kind of read as that thing's starting to turn and everything else. It's almost as if with a fig tree, you go out and it is dead winter and then, boom, you've got these big, beautiful leaves. It just, like, happens. He's using this analogy to actually drive home the, the instantaneous nature of it, the uncertainty that, you, that, that it's going to just happen. And when it does, you will know that he is near. Or even the days of Noah, he's using the imagery and speaking of how the people had no idea that it was going to come, but were just living their life, giving to marriage and taking care of the field. And then boom, it happened. Driving home the uncertainty of it all. And just as a little note, this is not speaking of a rapture. If it is, then if this is speaking of a rapture, then you want to be left behind. Because in the days of Noah, the ones who were wiped away were not the ones who were in a good place. Actually, in Luke, his disciples ask him, where, Lord? As in, where are these people taken away? And he says, where the corpses are. Um... So, yeah, in that imagery, you would want to be left behind. But it's all speaking of the fact that it happened instantaneously and unexpectedly. It was uncertain. But also, he's driving home the imminence. As I said, most of these things have occurred or at least in some fruition have come about. But he says that in the midst of it, it doesn't say that that it means that he has come, but that he's at the very gates. At any moment, can open the gate and enter in. That's why every generation from the first century up until now thought that they might be the one in which he returns. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted. So we see what I think is his point, his call in 42 through 44. He says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if, a ma- if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect in our other lectionary reading that I didn't put in here we have St. Paul saying a very similar thing in Romans 13 11 through 12 he says besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep to wake up for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed the night is far gone the day is at hand so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Paul says you know the time he's saying in context he's speaking of the time that we are in which is the time between two advents between the salvation that has been accomplished and the final redemption that is still yet to be completed. A time that is described as tribulation, a time depicted as wars and rumors of wars, of persecution, but also described as elsewhere as pains, birthing pains. That those times would not be a discouragement that all is getting worse, but a necessary reality that points to the advent of the completion of our salvation. So, Paul, in that reality of the uncertainty but the imminence, calls for all believers in the first century as well as the 21st century to wake up. In context, Paul equates that to not falling into the distractions and despair of the world, to continue on in a life of love, compassion, faith. Immediately after that passage I read, he moves on to not passing judgment on those who might be weaker and so I I share this because I think that it's important that we recognize that there's an intended tension in there of a level of uncertainty but also imminence that would lead our brothers and sisters in the first century to assume that he was going to return in their life and also to lead us to be aware that he could arrive tomorrow And that there are some elements of now and not yet in Jesus' words. But these are words actually of security and urgency. That the signs of judgment and tribulation are not evidence of Christ's failure, but of fulfillment of all things. That our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. No one knows the time and yet he is at the gate. That we are an Advent people living between the two Advents of the Christ. Certain that he will return to complete what he started, no matter how long he might tarry. And we do continue living our, faith, our life in faith, hope, and love. But we do so awake, alert to the fact that our redemption is near. Which means that we can celebrate and endure. We can face uncertainty and despair with joy and hope, knowing that whether it be tomorrow or another 2,000 years, Christ will return and put all things to right. And this is why I think that this ancient practice of observing the penitential season of Advent so important. Because unlike our culture that makes this another feast season, it's a penitential as a reminder that we are to be alert. Focusing our attention on our ultimate hope that is rooted in the Advent that came and the one that is coming so that in the midst of the stress and busyness of this season and the distraction of the signs of the times all around us, we are to be a people looking to the advent, the appearing of Christ in that prophetic now and not yet way. Looking to that second great and final advent to come, but also alert to the little advents now, the appearances of Christ and his sovereignty and grace throughout our lives every day. So my prayer is that we would let this Advent season be a time in which we are quite awake. Where we are vigilant to perceive the love, grace, and presence of Christ all around us. Sober and alert to see Christ revealing himself to us through the monotony of our routines, the small blessings and the tribulations, sweet conversations and stressful family gatherings. Through times of quiet reflection and prayer, as well as times of hectic busyness trying to catch up with that ever-growing to-do list. Vigilant to see Christ present, revealing himself in all of those things, all while continually resting in the certain hope of his glorious, visible, physical return in which the redemption of all things will be complete, and his kingdom of peace will reign for all eternity. A people holding on and looking for that second advent, not sure when it will occur, but knowing that it's near because he is at the gates. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection and bound my soul fast.